Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, I Am What I Am, Listening to Isaiah, Paul, and Peter, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 4th, 2007. My friend Jen, Jen once remarked, that when she prepared her sermons on the four readings from the weekly lectionary, she liked to let them speak to each other and have a conversation among themselves. When the readings don't honestly have anything to do with each other, such conversations can feel forced and artificial. But this week, the lectionary planets align almost perfectly. When we eavesdrop on Isaiah, Paul, and Peter, as they compare notes on their experiences of God's call, we hear a singular theme. It's a theme that St. Augustine long ago once confessed with equal parts passion and eloquence. Lord, what I am for you terrifies me. What I am with you consoles me. For you, I am a priest. With you, I am a Christian. When the prophet Isaiah had a vision of Yahweh in the Jerusalem temple, dread and terror overwhelmed him. Woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah was one of the most gifted poets in ancient history. Even today, people who are not familiar with the Bible recognize his verse in music like Handel's Messiah. But long before Kierkegaard's famous three stages, the artistic, the ethical, and the religious, Isaiah identified the profound difference between a mere artistic genius who amazes us with cleverness and a genuine apostle who conveys an authoritative word from God. The billowing smoke thundering voices and earthquake that he envisioned caused Isaiah to repudiate his literary competence. His vision reads like science fiction horror when an angel takes a smoldering coal from the altar with a pair of tongs and sears his lips, the very source of his words, his poetic eloquence. When the Apostle Paul pondered how viciously he had tried to exterminate the early Jesus movement, painful memories evoked feelings of deep regret. I am the least of all the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle, he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 9. In at least seven autobiographical flashbacks on his pre-conversion life, Paul describes how he imprisoned many disciples, dragged them to Jerusalem for punishment, expended every effort to force them to blaspheme, favored the death penalty for them, and opposed the name of Jesus with all his might. What he once boasted of as religious orthodoxy, he later repudiated as the worst form of self-righteous zealotry. Given his pathology of a violent predisposition, even late in his life, Paul still lamented, I'm the worst of all sinners, 
present tense. In Paul's mind, only what he described as the unlimited patience of God permitted him to move beyond the inertia and regret that his painful memories caused. When the fisherman Peter worked hard all night and caught nothing at all, but then obeyed Jesus' command to sink his nets into deeper waters, he hauled in a catch of fish that ripped their nets and nearly sunk their boat. When he realized what had happened, when he grasped the inverse relationship between the power of God and his paltry faith, he recoiled before Jesus in fear. Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Peter had other occasions to make this confession, too. When he rebuked Jesus for predicting his suffering and death, Jesus called Peter Satan. Matthew 16, 23. After denying that he would deny Jesus, and then doing so three times, Peter wept bitterly. Luke 22:62. And decades later, Paul publicly rebuked Peter for his blatant hypocrisy and reneging over eating with ritually impure Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2. The upshot of these three stories is that human sin, failure, and inadequacy were not obstacles to God's call. God doesn't require a perfect messenger for his message. Because of this, embracing rather than denying our fallenness is the path of liberation and not humiliation. It's an act of candid self-awareness and not misanthropic self-hatred. By it, we move from illusion and self-justification to reality and self-acceptance. In our most honest moments of self-awareness, we can still offer ourselves to God like Isaiah. Here am I, send me. Without hedging our bets or adding contingency clauses, we can imitate Peter, James, John, and their companions who we read, pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed Jesus. We can rejoice with Paul that by the grace of God, I am what I am. Most important of all, to Isaiah's dread, Paul's deep regrets and painful memories, Peter's fears, and to our own deeply personal insecurities today, God whispers to us what Jesus said to Peter. Don't be afraid. Luke chapter 5, verse 10. George Herbert, 1593 to 1633, was born to wealth and political power. After graduation from Cambridge, he distinguished himself as the university's public orator and then as a member of parliament. At the age of 36, and despite objections from his friends that he was wasting his life, Herbert renounced his life of privilege and became the pastor at Bemerton, a rural village near Salisbury. In Bemerton, he preached, served the pastoral needs of his people with loving distinction, cared for the poor, and helped to rebuild the church using his own resources. Four years later, a month before his 40th birthday, 
Herbert died of tuberculosis. Herbert also wrote poetry, although none of his poems had been published when he died. Upon his deathbed, he asked his friend Nicholas Ferrer to publish them if they might help, quote, any dejected poor soul, end quote. Ferrer did publish his poems under the title The Temple, and they became an enormous success. Published in 1633, by 1680, the book had gone through 13 editions. What attracts many readers to Herbert's poetry even today is not only their literary elegance, but his vivid depictions of his lifelong struggles between his privileged background, his worldly ambitions, his deep sense of inadequacy, and our unconditional embrace by a loving God. Consider his sonnet with the title, The Sinner. Lord, how I am all feverish when I seek what I have treasured in my memory. Since, if my soul make even with the weak, each seventh note by right is due to thee. I find there quarries of piled vanities, only shreds of holiness that dare not venture to show their face since cross to thy decrees. There the circumference earth is, heaven the center. In so much dregs the quintessence is small. The spirit and good extract of my heart comes to about the many hundredth part. Yet, Lord, restore thine image, hear my call. And though my hard hearts can scarce to thee groan, remember that thou didst once write in stone. Herbert knew what Isaiah, Paul, and Peter knew, that however dreadful our sin, however painful our memories, however palpable our fears, God's limitless love is greater still. Or as Paul once said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And for further reflection, with whose experience do you most identify? Isaiah, Paul, or Peter? Consider the words of Kierkegaard. Whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. Number three, which lines of Herbert's poem resonate with you? And number four, I'd recommend a favorite book of mine by Donald McCullough, The Consolations of Imperfection, Learning to Live with Life's Limitations. For books this week, I review a book by Gary Wills with the short title, What Paul Meant. New York, Viking, 2006, 193 pages. In his book with the title, Papal Sins, Structures of Deceit, from the year 2000, Gary Wills left readers wondering why he remained Catholic, giving his unsparing criticisms of institutional Catholicism. He tried to answer that question two years later with a book by the title, Why I Am a Catholic. 
With five books on St. Augustine and his book Lincoln at Gettysburg that won the Pulitzer Prize, Wills remains one of our country's most important and outspokenly Christian intellectuals. Today he is Professor of History Emeritus at Northwestern University. In this book, a sequel to What Jesus Meant from the year 2004, Wills tries to rescue Paul from those who view him as what he calls the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus, end quote. There's a sense in which Wills agrees with detractors like Thomas Jefferson or Bernard Shaw, who excoriated Paul as a quote-unquote monstrous imposition upon the gentle Jesus. For at the end of the day, Wills excises what he considers is a massive misreading of Paul by interpreters like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Pascal, and Kierkegaard, all of whom emphasize sin, guilt, election, justification, and predestination. Wills's Paul is a radical egalitarian who taught the same ethic of indiscriminate love as Jesus, as we read, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13. Wills describes Paul as a heroic traveler who logged more than 10,000 miles to spread this love. In his view, later impersonators and interpolators turned Paul into a misogynist and anti-Semite. Undergirding this interpretation of Paul are two critical presuppositions, that most everything that Luke writes about Paul is nonsense, exaggeration, poetic creation, and fiction. And secondly, that only seven of the epistles attributed to Paul are authentic. Well, so much for canonicity. By contrast, compare Yaroslav Pelikan on Luke in his book with the short title, Acts. Still, I appreciated Wills's intent to argue that what Paul meant was not something different than or contrary to what Jesus meant, but that we can best find out the latter by studying the former. His letters stand closer to Jesus than do any other words in the New Testament. Wills is a classicist who taught Greek for many years, so I also appreciated the appendix with his translation of key words, an effort to move readers from stubborn anachronistic and linguistic accretions that have bred over familiarity. For example, he uses the word gathering instead of church, and emissary instead of the word apostle. Gary Wills, what Paul meant. For film this week, I reviewed the Italian film called Angela. I watched this film because the DVD case boasts that it won awards at five film festivals, but that only proves that the experts can be badly wrong. Set in 1984 Palermo, Angela is bored at her husband Sarah's shoe store, so she takes a more active role in the real family business which is running drugs by stuffing them into the shoes inside the boxes. Angela is something of a trophy wife for the older mafioso Saro, and you know it's a very bad idea when the young Messino, a confidant of Saro, starts to hit upon her. What was he thinking? 
in a mafia movie? In prison, Sorrow dumps Angela and promises, quote, your Prince Charming is a walking corpse, end quote. True enough, we never see Messino again, nor does Angela. I tired at watching unshaven men with unbuttoned shirts and pinky rings talk tough in darkened rooms, and I failed to find anything very interesting in this movie. It's in Italian with English subtitles. Angela from the year 2002. And for poetry this week, we have posted the poem by George Herbert called The Storm. If as the winds and waters here below do fly and flow, my sighs and tears as busy were above, sure they would move and much affect thee as tempestuous times amaze poor mortals and object their crimes. Stars have their storms, even in a high degree, as well as we. A throbbing conscience spurred by remorse hath a strange force. It quits the earth, and mounting more and more, dares to assault thee and besiege thy door. There it stands knocking to thy music's wrong, and drowns the song. Glory and honor are set by till it an answer get. Poets have wronged poor storms. Such days are best. They purge the air without. They purge within the breast. The Storm by George Herbert. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 4th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.